Psalm 46 is the text for this morning's message that Pastor John will be giving. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles and follow along, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains shake in the, in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her right early. The nations rage, and the kingdoms totter. His, he utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come. Behold the works of the Lord, how he has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes the wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Almost everywhere Jesus went, crowds gathered. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to touch him or have him touch them. And one time, he looked out over this this big crowd, and he saw them, and then he turned, and he said to his disciples, They are like sheep without a shepherd. They are harassed and helpless. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send forth laborers into his harvest. And that's what I'd like to do before we go any further. Father, this climax of Mission Fest 91, a week late. I pray that you would send laborers into your harvest. I pray that you would awaken us to the harassment, the helplessness of the sheep without a shepherd all over the world. I pray that you would be stirring right now in the hearts of many. I believe you have appointed this service to be life-changing for some as they make a mid-course correction in the trajectory of their lives. I believe you have been stirring, that you have been speaking, that you have been doing some remarkable things in the lives of people, and that this morning will prove a juncture that they will look back on years to come and mark it as decisive in determining the course of their future days. And, oh, God, I pray that you would help us be still and know you in these moments. Speak, Lord. Make your will known. Free us from those things that are diverting us from the most fruitful and significant way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One of the remarkable facts of our time is the migration of 
great numbers of people into the cities. They come like sheep without a shepherd all over the world. From North Africa, they go to Paris. Uh, Salvadorians go to Los Angeles. Vietnamese go to Hong Kong. Some of them are political refugees. Some are refugees simply from hopelessness. They go in search of a better life, seeking to escape violence or poverty, pain, sickness, famine. Combine this with the ever-growing throng of children. You call them the, the lambs without a shepherd. Orphans, runaways, throwaways, impoverished, many of them victimized by the racketeering prostitution and pornography industry around the world. And then add to this that the city doesn't work. It doesn't work. They come and seek of hope and they find homelessness, drugs, and alcohol, and crime, and abuse, and emptiness, and all the miseries that go with unemployment and destitution in the larger slums of the world. And then add to that that they're not all leaving the villages. A lot of people talk as if there won't be anything left but cities in ten years. That's not true. Tens of thousands of villages in India still have, will have, totally unreached people in them who've never had a word about Jesus in their town. The question all of that poses for me is what it has to do with us sitting here in air-conditioned heat, plenty of light, we have refrigeration at home, we have transportation, we have computers and literature and television and medicine and schools and food and radio and sports. What should we do with our lives? What should we do till Jesus comes? You've got some life remaining between now and the, and the end, either your death or Jesus comes. What do you think you should do with it? What are your goals? Do we look upon the misery of the nations and the world with disgust and blame? Or do we look with the eyes of Jesus and uh, see them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and pray with Jesus that the Lord of the harvest would send shepherds, laborers, harvesters, lovers in there. In Afghanistan, the life expectancy of a man is 36 years. In Guinea, it's 38 in Mozambique and Congo, it's 44. In Ethiopia, 39. In Nigeria, it's 46. In America, it's 72. In Japan, 75. There are 825 million adults, adults in the world who cannot read at all. They can't read the Bible. They can't read instructions on a soup can. They can't read a tract. And the numbers of the illiterate adult population in the world is increasing dramatically. Between 1960 and 1980, 
The number of men who can't read increased by 20 million. And the number of women who can't read increased by 74 million. In the world today, one out of every three deaths is a child under five years old. 125,000 children a week die under five years old owing to malnutrition or simple infections that we guard our children from with just a few dollars and a vaccination. Over six million a year drop dead for very simple, solvable reasons. Harassed and helpless. In America, there are 546,000 doctors, 133,000 dentists, one and a half million nurses. In India, with three and a half times the number of people, there are half as many doctors and 90% fewer nurses and 93% fewer dentists. In Mozambique, where Quentin and Debbie are going, there are 16 million people and 279 doctors. In Guinea, where our Manica team is going, there are 7 million people and 300 doctors and 21 dentists for the teeth of 7 million people. David Barrett, in his uh, 1991 survey of the state of Christianity in the world, pointed out that 23% of the world is totally ignorant of Christianity and Christ and the gospel. Totally ignorant. You're not talking about people in the United States here. You're talking about people who have never heard about Jesus Christ. That's 1.2 billion people. After 2,000 years of standing before King Jesus, hearing him say, go and make disciples of all nations. And as I thought about why that is, I can't believe that it's because when he said, pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers, that God changed his mind and that when people do that, he said, that's not a good idea anymore. Don't think I'll send any. It just must be that we haven't asked. We haven't asked. We haven't, as Jesus says in Luke 18, cried to him day and night for the vindication of his cause. We have simply fallen into line with the American pursuit of comfort. Less than 9% of all Christian missionaries are targeting the groups where these 1.2 billion individuals live. Less than 1% of the evangelical Christian or of Christian income makes it to the frontiers to support the missionary cause. Let me raise the question again. What is our life for in this age? Why are you alive? Do you ask that question? Why am I here? What do these things have to do with me and the rest of my life? Last Sunday night, Bill Waldrop stood here, the executive director of ACMC, and we did have a service in spite of the uh, announcement on the radio that we weren't supposed to cross up in communications. I'm sorry, I don't know how that happened, but it was great. I wish you all could have been here. And the way he blessed me is finding its way now into this sermon. He preached from... John 17, 4, where Jesus says, Father, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And Bill Waldrop stood here, a man, I suppose, in his 50s, and said, When I die, when I lie on my deathbed, I want to be able to say, Father, 
I have glorified your name on the earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And when he said that, it's like a sledgehammer against my heart. Me too! I want to be able to say when I die, whether it's at 46 or 96, Father, I have glorified you. Not, I don't have any illusions that the first thing I'm going to say as my death draws near is, I have been a great sinner and Jesus is a great Savior. That's the first thing I'm going to say. And then when I have peace, then I'm going to say, I hope. And I pray, Father, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He said he works a lot with men. And uh, I think this applies to women as well, but maybe especially for men and the way we're wired. I'm not sure. He said uh, he works a lot with men and he finds that men at about the age of 50, somewhere in there, Change the kinds of questions they're asking. The questions move from being questions of success to questions of significance. Noelle and I were riding home, uh, and I, I turned to her and I said, You know, Noelle, I think one of the reasons that there are uh, Stresses in our family, and the reason I'm so hard to live with is because I turned 50 when I was 18. <laughs> Had my midlife, I've never grown out of a midlife crisis. My life is always in crisis, wondering where the greater path of significance is. I want to say the same thing Bill Waldrop said, and I think most of you. Feel that ringing in your heart right now. Whether you've got a year to live, ten years to live, or all of your life in front of you from the youth, you want it to be significant. So I ask the question, why are you here? What What is it for? What are you going to do with the rest of your life in view of the world? Or do you just blank out the world? It really doesn't matter what's going on outside my little sphere. And so my goal is just me. Now, this is not an easy question to find the path of significance. It's just not easy. I don't think God means it for it to be easy. I think he means for us to be on our face saying things like, I present my body to you as a living sacrifice anywhere, anytime. Anything you want, I'm yours. Just make it plain, the path of significance. I think God wants us on our face, no matter what our age is. I think he wants little children. As soon as they discover that Jesus is Lord and Savior, for the next thing to come onto their lips in prayer at five or four or six or eight or twelve is Jesus I know it'll be a long time before I get big and, and, and become what I don't know what I'm going to become. But I want to tell you now that if you'll help me, I will go anywhere and do anything, anytime, any way, and be whatever you want me to be. I promise you that. I think we ought to teach our children to pray like that and ask them if they're willing. 
And I think he wants adults right in the middle of their vocations at age 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, retirement. I think he wants us to pause periodically in our lives, and today is one of those times, and say, Lord, it's comfortable, and I'm making it, or maybe I'm not making it, and it's uncomfortable, and I'm willing to reconsider the totality of the rest of my life and what you want me to do with it. I'm open. I'm 85 and I'm open. I'm 35 and I'm open. If you want me to stay in this vocation, Lord, show me how to make it significant for what you stand for. If you want me to change and have a mid-course correction in the trajectory of my life, show me and I'll do it. I think that's the way he wants us to talk to him and, and to pray today. Life is very short, folks. <laughs> it's real short. James said, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. How long is that on a cold morning? Like that. Two seconds on a real cold morning with a lot of moisture. One second on a dry morning. Two seconds you've got to live, and then forever. And that's long. Believe me, that's long. Forever is a long, long time. When I was a little boy, we had in Greenville, South Carolina, 122 Bradley Boulevard, and my phone number was 26283. Do you remember the first phone number you ever learned? 26283. Isn't that amazing? We had a spiral stairway to the roof. I'm not even sure why it was built that way. And I can remember as a little boy in the middle of the night, not in the middle of the night, but late at night, I climbed the spiral stairway alone and I lay down on my back on the shingles on the roof and look up into the stars and think about eternity. And it was long. It was scary to a little kid. Scary. Heaven was scary. Hell was scary. Heaven was scary. Because it was so long. Long. And everything hangs on this two seconds breath. Now I want to ask you how you're living out your two seconds worth of vapor's breath. Are you living in view of eternity? Are you living in view of the realities of the world as God and Christ see them? Or are you living your life as though this is your only chance to be comfortable? Are you living your life as though this is the only chance to buy these fun things? Are you living your life as though this is my only chance to get a home where I can get away from it all? This is my only chance to play games. This is my only chance to buy the dream cottage. I just got to. It's my only chance. Is that the way you're thinking? Have you learned from the world how to live? Or are you listening to James and the psalmists that you have two seconds? How will you live it? And then forever enjoy. One of the reasons we choose to live insignificantly 
is because we don't become still enough for the great realities of the world to clobber us, grip us, take us, shape us. We're always in a hurry. Rush, rush, rush. Do this, do that, do this, do that. And you know what we do when we stop? We turn on the radio or the television. Mark it. That's not what this text means. Look at verse 10. Psalm 4610. Be still. Be still. Cease striving. Cease hurrying. Be still. Be quiet. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, what that text is saying, I think it's real plain, is that the life revolutionizing impact of God's supremacy in the world and God's triumph among the nations and God's coming kingdom, the life revolutionizing impact of God's godness doesn't get through to hurried people. It doesn't get through to the television. It doesn't get through the radio. It gets through when you get alone and are quiet with nothing but God. So I said with regard to the men's retreat when I wrote the Star article a few weeks ago that Satan is against this retreat because he knows what happens in families when husbands take a pad and a Bible and go out under a tree alone and sit down and say, why am I here? What's my family all about anyway? What's my job for? What should I do with the remaining years? Satan hates that. Satan is a driver. Come on, come on, get to work. Come on, get a hobby. Come on, turn the TV on. Come on, don't you dare have any silence. But I just want to plead with you to listen to verse 10. Be still and know that God is God. Let the great realities of the world grip you. God reigns among the nations. God's kingdom is coming. Forever is a long time and it can be everlasting joy. The world is perishing with tremendous pain and misery and lostness. You are rich. God hits home in the stillness. Let me illustrate. Um, It happens to me in remarkable ways on airplanes, especially at night coming home. Picture it now, Friday night. I've been four days in Boston this week speaking. There were good times. The Lord met us, and I think it was well invested. But I love to get on the plane, 7.30 in Boston, and uh, start flying home. And I'm way at the back of the plane, and there's no noise back there. And uh, the sky is very big. And uh, Minneapolis and Toronto and Green Bay are very small. And there's stillness. And you begin to think about your life, your family, your ministry, the years you may or may not have left. And you start to take stock, what I was doing. And the Lord met me and uh, gave me some pretty clear 
assurances of the path of significance in my life. But let me, let me preface it by telling you what those are by, uh, telling you what compounded the emotion of the moment. I had spent Thursday of this week looking at all the places where Jonathan Edwards lived and ministered. Jonathan Edwards is my hero, for those of you who don't know. Um, I went to Northampton where he preached for 23 years to the congregational church there. I went into the church that stands on the location and saw the big frieze and read it. And the woman carried us and showed us sketchings of all the buildings. Saw the big stone that was the original one outside the building. I went to the graveyard. He's not buried there. He's buried in Princeton. But John, uh, David Brainerd is buried there. And Jerusha, his fiance, is buried right beside him. Very touching uh, choice of somebody there. Um, and then the, the Edwards family is there. And then he got fired. 23 years in the ministry and they fired him. It was almost a unanimous vote to kick him out of his church. At age 49. So he went west to Stockbridge. So I went west to Stockbridge. And in Stockbridge, the mission house is there where he lived for eight years. And the church where he ministered to the Indians for eight years. And I saw the plaque in there. And I pictured him walking back and forth. It's about, a, I don't know, 800 yards between the mission house and, and the church there. And then we drove south through Enfield, Connecticut to South Windsor, which then was called East East Windsor. And there's where he was born and the church where his father ministered before him for 62 years in one pastorate and where little boy Edwards grew up. And just down the street, the house or the location of the house where he was born. And I saw a big oak tree, must have been this big around, right outside the church. And I said, now that oak tree is so big around, it surely must have been there in the early 1700s. And therefore, Jonathan Edwards must have climbed in this tree. (laughs) And I just looked at it. Jonathan Edwards climbed in this tree. And I sat on the plane and I thought, he's gone. We asked one woman that we picked up when we were driving, three of us, because their car stalled and we picked her up and we said, uh, you ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? He's right outside Northampton. She'd never heard of him. He's gone. And then I thought, he's not gone. He's not gone by a long shot because what a legacy of God's godness he left behind. Nobody in the history of America has seen God the way Edwards saw God. Nobody knew how to be still and know that God is God the way Edwards knew how to be still and know that God was God. And therefore, the legacy he left was significant. It's still bearing fruit in my life, many of your lives, and around the world, in many lives today. And that context caused me to meditate deeply on my own life. And these things came clear to me. And I only mention this because I hope that by your hearing my process, you will be drawn into the process this morning. To take stock, to ask a very serious question about your future, the significance of your life, what do you want to do with it in a world like ours, and an eternity that's stretching out in front of us, and the fact that you've got about two seconds to live a vapor's breath. Will you live it like it's your only chance to gather things Or will you live it like the payoff is forever? I want to leave behind 
four God-centered sons. And I'll do anything in my power to make it happen. Second, I want to leave behind a loved, honored, and cherished wife. Third, I want to leave behind a strong, biblically grounded, Christ-exalting, radically obedient, God-enjoying church. And fourth, I want to leave behind a written testimony to the supremacy of God and the worth of God and the beauty of God in all of life. That much of my path of significance is clear to me. Not everything is clear, but that much is clear. And so I want you to be still this morning and reckon with God in your life. And you'll follow his lead as he makes plain to you as this service comes to a close now. What your path of significance is, you will follow him if you are not afraid of the risks that will be involved. Significance is risky when you choose it over against success. But this psalm is written not only to ask you to be still, reckon with God's godhood, and bring your life into accord with it, but it, it's written to encourage you and strengthen you that when you do that, God will be there to help you. Now, I want you to see this. Look at verses 2 and 3 and compare them with me to verse 6. Verse 2 says, Though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. In other words, if nature comes against you, Roaring, foaming, earthquakes, storms, floods. If water and land upheave and come against you, like in the Philippines, if they come against you, know that I am your refuge and your strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And therefore, if you choose the path of significance and it moves you into crisis and there's upheaval, know that I'm your refuge. But look at verse 6. This doesn't come out in any English translation, but it's very important that we see this. The same two words that were used there in regard to nature, namely, though the mountains shake, that word shake, and though its waters roar, that word roar, are both found right here in verse 6 in the words, the nations rage, that's the same Hebrew word for roar, and the kingdoms totter. That's the same Hebrew word for shake. Now, that's no accident. What the writer is trying to communicate to us this morning is this. Whether it's nature that is shaking your life, causing you to feel vulnerable and uncertain, whether it's nature, or whether it's nations, political processes, people, groups, upheaval, crises in the world, in either case, he's there and he's stronger, he's a refuge and he's a strength, and the next phrase there, he utters his voice, the earth melts, is meant to give you encouragement. 
In other words, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, and you might tend to say, oh no, what becomes of God and his cause? And the next verse says, he utters his voice and the, and the world melts. So don't worry. He can melt the mountains. He can melt the nations. He can end any upheaval he wants. In fact, you keep reading and it says he makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the chariots with fire. Be still. Don't be frenzied. Don't be fretting. In fact, I want to end on that note of restfulness. Because one of the dangers of moving out of the harried pace of success-seeking is that you might just exchange it for the harried pace of significance-seeking. Never hear God. Look at verse 4. Right after describing this water that's upheaving and crashing and roaring and threatening the land and civilization and your life, There is a river, a river, not a sea, a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now, that's an intentional contrast between the sea and the river. The sea in the Bible is very often a threatening and menacing thing. It's deep. There are monsters in it. It roars. It foams. It throws ships over. It crashes over lands. Rivers in the Bible are generally sources of life. They water the land. They bring peace. They flow smoothly. And, and God wants you to hear this morning, yes, a call to be still and know his mighty godness. To know the world that we live in. And to bring your life into a path of significance, even if it costs you success in the world's eyes. But he also wants you to hear, as I close, that when you choose the path of significance with its crises, with its burdens, with its pain. He's a refuge. He's a strength. He utters his voice and the earth melts. And he's a river. A quiet, deep, deep river from which you can drink life. And it says, be glad. I'd like you to bow in prayer with me as we close. And... I've been praying about how to end the service, and you pray with me now about how God might want us to end it. I'm not going to drag it out, but I do want to pray for a group of you and have you stand to be prayed for. Let me try to define what that group is, and you pray with me whether you're in that group or not. We had about 35 people or so stand in the first service, so I'm praying that God will move you. The group that I'd like to stand are people who in recent days or maybe just this morning, have felt an unusual, not a usual, but an unusual sense of restlessness in your life. A sense that God might be trying to get through to you with some change you need to make. It might be vocational. It might be in the ministry you do in the church. It might be in your relationships. It might be in something I can't even think to mention, but... I think a lot of you are at a fork in the road this morning, and you're not sure about that. You're not sure which way to go, or even if you're at a fork. But you want me to pray that God would give clarity to you. So I don't want everybody to stand. We're not talking about the general kind of ups and downs we all have. 
I think there's some of you that God has been touching in an extraordinary way, trying to get your attention, to get you to pray and think and study about something new in your life. So if you're in that category, would you stand, please? There are people young and there are people old, and that's a glorious and wonderful thing to me. I want to pray right now for you who are standing. I love it, Father, that you know these hearts that I don't know right now. You see every movement of their soul. You've been working in them. I thank you for it. I bless it now. And I ask that you would give clarity. Guard them from the deceits of the evil one. And I pray earnestly that you would open their eyes to your glory. I pray that you would show them your purpose for them. I pray that you would remove fear from their lives. I pray that you would work relational things and vocational things and health things. I pray for peace. I pray for confidence and faith in their lives. And I pray for a breakthrough where there's obstacles. Lord, send laborers into your harvest. Would you all stand with these people now as I close with the benediction? And please, all of you know that our prayer teams, one of the prayer teams, come on up while I'm talking right now. Our prayer teams are here. And any of you who stood or others who didn't stand, who want to pray about anything at all, from a physical ailment you'd like God to heal or uh, decisions you need to make or relational or emotional, anything at all, they'd love to stay and pray a while with you. And now may the God of hope grant you to be filled with joy and peace in believing these precious things. In order that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in significance as you abound in hope. And all the people said, Amen. Thank you.